The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. Give me Jesus. <laughs> That's all we need, isn't it? Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 11 today. Uh, we'll get back to, to Daniel chapter 9. But uh, faithful ministers of all generations have recognized that when they preach, they're not only preaching to one kind of person. Of course, there's the... Uh, Obvious distinctions between believer and unbeliever, uh, but among even true believers who walk in here on a Sunday, there's distinctions. Uh, there are various conditions of the soul, and the Word of God itself recognizes that there's a different kind of application that's necessary for different kinds of people. Uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 14 to 15, it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And in just about every congregation, you have people that fit into all of these various categories. Unruly, faint-hearted, weak, and those who need patience and those who do evil. MacArthur called them the wayward, the worried, the the weak, the wearisome, and the wicked. And of all these categories of people who arrive here on a Sunday, it's our duty to patiently discern what category people fall into because the Scripture says, be patient with everyone. And uh, we'll get back to Daniel 9, but this afternoon I want to return to a message from Matthew chapter 11 and consider how Jesus made those distinctions himself. So uh, Matthew chapter 11 introduces us to uh, a new section of the Gospel of Matthew uh, where the rejection of Jesus as king is really beginning to crank up. And as we make our way into chapter 11, Matthew will find, uh, we'll find in Matthew that the cities where most of Jesus' miracles were performed, that Jesus was rejected. Those who considered themselves the wise and intelligent rejected Jesus as they still do even today. In chapter 12, we'll find that the, uh, the Pharisees who represented the best of religion at that time, uh, who were held as in the highest esteem by people, actually rejected Jesus and began to plot to end the life of Jesus Christ, uh, declaring that his works were nothing more than the works of Satan. Uh, This is not the kind of uh, grand entrance that's expected uh, for the Messiah, and to make matters worse, uh, those who rejected him seemed to be the ones who were the people with power and influence, while those who accepted him were the ones who were being rejected, silenced, cast aside, and no one faced that rejection more than John the Baptist did. And in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist was in prison for proclaiming the truth, and he sends a message from behind bars. But the message that he sent to the Lord was not a message of confident triumph. He was discouraged. He was doubtful. He even wondered, you know, should we be expecting someone else? He was up against the ropes. He's being pummeled by the enemy. And we know that even though John staggered, he had a genuine and persevering faith because of where he directed his doubts. He brought his doubts to Jesus. That's that's the place where you bring your doubts. That's the place where you bring your discouragement. 
That's the place where you bring your heartache. You bring it back to the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist did. He looked to Jesus. And if you walked in here today with doubts, with uncertainties, with insecurities, with questions, I want you to know that as long as you're bringing them to Jesus, as long as you're trusting in his word, you've come to the right place and you're in the best company. John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And he had to do the same thing that you and I have to do today. We have to come to Jesus. He had to to bring his uncertainties to Jesus Christ. And as John came, he received the, the right kind of encouragement from Jesus. Jesus reminded John of the works that he did that pointed him back to what the scriptures predicted. And John found all the reassurance he needed by comparing the person and the work of Christ against the Old Testament scriptures. It was all there. And the work that Jesus began, he would fulfill, he would complete it. And there was no need to doubt that the the rest of the scriptures would be fulfilled just as Jesus said. Even though John was in prison temporarily, that had nothing to say about the faithfulness of his God. And Jesus does more than just reassure his wounded servant. He also defends his wounded servant. Jesus defends discouraged servants. So let's take a look at our passage together. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 down to verse 15. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 7. So as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Now, Father, your word is sufficient not for every thing in life, Lord, that we would face. Uh, Lord, your word has all that we need. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us, Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, this week as we do every week. Uh, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's apparent from this text that uh, Jesus is very concerned with what the crowds think about John the Baptist. He publicly acknowledges John as a prophet in verse 9, as a messenger of God in verse 10, as the greatest of all men in verse 11, and as Elijah figure who was predicted to come in verse 14. You know, imagine being able to to put that down on your, your resume, right? John the Baptist, more than a prophet, greatest of all men. You know, we don't hear Christ speak words like this about anybody else in Scripture. John is distinguished as the prophet who graduated with highest honors, the summa cum laude prophet. But the interesting thing about this is that John never hears a word of it. So all this that Jesus said about John the Baptist, it was spoken while the men who came from John were going away. John's disciples came to get an answer about a question that John the Baptist had. And it was while they were going away, that's when Jesus began to speak about who John was. 
So John wouldn't have been able to put on his resume, greatest of all times, uh, because he never heard it. As these men were going away, that's when Jesus began to direct these words to who? Verse 7 says, he began to speak to the crowds. These words weren't intended for John. Jesus doesn't even send John's disciples back with a, a plaque to put in his prison. All John gets are the words, don't be offended by me. Take a look at my works, compare it with Scripture. That's all that John gets. Look, look at what I've done. And that strikes us as a little insensitive. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, this one illustration I was reminded of was in the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. We're told the story of a small convoy of soldiers under heavy gun and rocket fire, and a colonel stops the convoy, takes in some wounded, tears a dead driver out of the driver's seat, and orders a bleeding sergeant who's standing in shock nearby, to get into the truck and drive. And the sergeant replies, but I'm shot, colonel. And the colonel says, everybody's shot. Get in and drive. (laughs) It's not the most sympathetic response that John receives. You know, look at my works. Look at what I've done. Go go tell John the things that you're seeing. He he doesn't get to hear all the the words that Jesus spoke about him. Verse 5 says, uh, verse 4, I'll start, and it says, verse 4 of chapter 11, Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you see in here. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's what John receives. As one commentator points out, Jesus did have deep sympathy for his forerunner, but John was not a man to be pitied or coddled, even in a dungeon of suffering. Praise could be misinterpreted as flattery and would add nothing to the consolation of the prisoner in the dungeon. John never received the words of commendation, but he received all that he needed to be reassured he received the word of God. And you may never hear the words of commendation that you will one day hear. You may not hear those words on this side of eternity. You may never hear the words of thanks and gratitude for a job well done or for the ministry that you may be involved in. You may never hear the words of commendation, but what we can rest assured in is that we have the word of God and that's enough. And that one day we can look forward to that time when we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear, right? Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And isn't it enough to know that God knows who we are? That's enough to know that God knows. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. And that will be enough for us, right? But Christ wanted to make sure that the crowds heard the words about John because they needed to be reassured about the ministry that John had among them. And this is where Jesus directs their attention to. He defends his discouraged servant before the crowds to prevent them from entertaining negative and dishonorable thoughts about John and his ministry. And here we learn something about the character of our, our Savior. Our Savior is a defender. And we see this pattern throughout the, the Gospels. Remember when the, the disciples were turning away the little children from coming to Christ? What does Christ do? He rebukes his disciples and says, let them alone. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them from coming to me. He's a defender. Mark chapter 14, there was a woman who who broke an alabaster box of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. And Judas accused her of being wasteful and the disciples scolded her. 
But Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. When the mob arrived in Gethsemane to take Jesus and they approached his disciples, he says, let the disciples alone. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Let them alone. Later on in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, it lets us know that there is an accuser who accuses us day and night before God, but he will be thrown down by the authority of Christ so that he will let us alone. Because we will be those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is our defender. He's our advocate. And back in Matthew, what Jesus knows is that the crowds are beginning to think evil about John. And, you know, maybe John wasn't that strong after all. You know, maybe he really wasn't a prophet. You know, maybe, maybe he's never been qualified to be a prophet. What if he never really spoke for God in the first place? I mean, who, who is this John anyway? And basically what Jesus is saying is let him alone. This man has been approved by heaven. In essence, Jesus is saying, let him alone. He doesn't allow them to kick a wounded and discouraged servant while he's down. And after Jesus spoke these words, uh, we're left with uh, encouragement from our Savior. Number one, number one, discouragement does not equal weakness. If you're here, you're discouraged. Discouragement does not equal weakness. Look at verse 7 again. It says, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. So Jesus asked a number of rhetorical questions that don't really require a response because the answer is so obvious. The first two questions uh, really make the same point. You know, John wasn't some flimsy, weak-willed prophet. That's not what they saw. Now, the word to see, it's from the Greek word theomai. It's the, you know, to behold, to be noticed. So what did these people notice when they looked at John? As, as John was living his life before them, what did they see? He's on the stage. It's like a theater. When John was in the, the barren area located to the west of the Dead Sea, arid, bleak, dry, lack of water, he made sacrifices for his ministry. There's nothing out there, definitely no cities. People weren't drawn to John the Baptist because they wanted to see some weak man who, you know, didn't know how to stand up for himself or have a backbone. He wasn't a man living an easy life. He wasn't fragile. He wasn't a reed that was blown around by the wind. In Isaiah 36, when Assyria was mocking Egypt, they called Egypt a, a, a crushed reed. It says, Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So, so John wasn't something that would be easily snapped, easily broken. There were plenty of, of weak men back at the palace for that. He says, if you want to see weak men, you know, they're in the king's palaces. They're not out here in the arid, dry wilderness, you know, serving the Lord. They're, they're, they're in the king's palaces. If you want to see weak men, go there. That's not what you went out to see. Many of the priests were associated with the Roman government. They were the weak men, you know, fearful of Rome. If the people wanted to see weak men, there were plenty of those. But they came to John because of his stand for the truth. And just as a side note, if your life is going to count for Christ, you need to do the same thing. You need to be willing to stand for the truth. People need to know you as a person of conviction, not as a person of convenience. And John wasn't some timid soul who was afraid of who he might offend by the truth. He wasn't a flimsy reed. And the second picture is a picture of weakness. Communicates this idea of ease and comfort. 
He says, what do you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? You know, one paraphrase says, did you go out to see a man in silks and satins? You know, the word soft was uh, often associated with that which is effeminate. And John the Baptist wasn't a, a pretty boy, couldn't be bribed, riches didn't influence him. John's attire was rough. You know, he was a rough guy with rough clothes. Camel hair garments were uh, the clothing of the poor and still are common in some poor parts of Syria. Uh, The outer protective uh, fur called the guard hair of the the camel, it's coarse, it's inflexible, and the poor didn't have the means of of processing that camel hair to make it softer to, to wear, so they'd simply remove the skin of the animal treat the inner surface of it to keep it from decomposing, stitch it up, and then throw it on. Basically, it's like you know, wearing a rug, walking around in a rug. That's what John wore around. A man like this isn't looking for favors from Rome. John wasn't weak, soft, easily influenced. But he did become discouraged. He became, became discouraged after being thrown in prison and seemingly left alone. And some people can think, if, you know, if only I was stronger, I wouldn't suffer with these kinds of doubts. You know, we can beat ourselves down unnecessarily, be ashamed because of our, our doubts, because of our struggles. You know, what will people think of me if they know that I'm struggling here? And you never reach out for help, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Even John the Baptist here reached out for help. <laughs> he admitted that he was struggling. I mean, that's, that's what you find it's, it's in verse Verse 2, now when John, while, his, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said, are you the expected one or shall we look for somebody else? Like, like Lord, I'm struggling here. This does not seem to fit all that I've heard about you. Like, why am I still in prison if you're the one who sets the captives free? What am I doing in here? Lord, are you really the one or am I looking for somebody else? He's struggling. And he doesn't pretend that he's strong when he's struggling, when he's weak. He, he admits it. Lord, I'm weak right now. I'm struggling right now. I don't have it all together. I need help. General Douglas MacArthur prayed for his son. He said, build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. Do you have the strength to admit when you're weak, when you're discouraged, when you're struggling, when you're tempted to sin? Do you have the do you have the, the, the strength to say, I'm weak, when you're struggling with sin? When you need reassurance of the goodness and the character of God, His sovereign plan for your life? Do you reach out to Christ? Do you reach out for others and say, I, I need help? Can somebody pray for me? We often ask for help with everything but our real struggles. <laughs> you know, we get together in a prayer group and it's like, oh, hey, pray for my aunt, you know, cross country, you know, she's having surgery. And it's like we pray for everything on the outside, but we never actually... Say, hey, can you pray for me? Like, I need some help right now. Mature believers understand that we can sometimes become weak, and Jesus reminded us that discouragement does not equal weakness. It's not, it's not weak to call out for help. Discouragement does not equal weakness. Also, he reminds us that discouragement does not equal unworthiness. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet... This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He says uh, he's a prophet, and he's more than a prophet. Everybody regarded John as a prophet. Herod Antipas was afraid to put John to death because the nation regarded him as a prophet. And Jesus affirms the prophetic office of John the Baptist, and it's 
not just that John was a prophet, past tense, he was, right now, is a prophet. In the present tense, as Jesus is speaking, he is a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. His doubt, his discouragement did not disqualify him from ministry. He was not unworthy of his office. And maybe it's crossed your mind that my doubts or discouragement might have permanently placed me on the shelf. You know, how could I ever be useful for ministry again if I'm struggling with this? The words of Christ should be of great encouragement to you that John was not disqualified from his ministry of being a prophet. And he was even more than a prophet. He was the, the prophet of prophets. He was the, a prophet who was prophesied about. Back in uh, Malachi chapter 3, if you want to flip back there, just one book. Malachi chapter 3. Actually, I'll start at chapter 2. But uh, Malachi was a prophet who ministered to the nation of Israel following their time of uh, captivity in Babylon. And at this time, it seemed like the nation learned absolutely nothing from the judgment of the captivity, falling back into the same sins that put them there in the first place. So God sends Malachi, his messenger, his messenger of judgment. The name Malachi means messenger. But look at what he says in uh, uh, starting at verse chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the, the God of justice? It says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like... Fuller's soap. What you find here is that uh, John the Baptist was that messenger. He came as that messenger, and his job was to clear the way for the Lord, to prepare the hearts of the people by calling them to repentance and faith in the one who was to come. His job description was in Scripture. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 40, we find another description of uh, the forerunner of Christ, Isaiah chapter 40. This is a section that starts with the comfort of God in verse 1. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. And drop down to verse, verse 3. And this is what John said about himself. Verse 3, it says, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And don't miss what Jesus is saying. If, if John's responsibility was to prepare the way for the Lord, then what is Jesus saying about himself? He's saying, I'm, I'm the Lord. <laughs> I'm the one that's being prepared for. And none of that changed because John's struggling here. He was still God's messenger. And that's encouraging news for those who struggle. The Bible is clear about the qualification for New Testament ministry, we can't ignore that or avoid that, but we also can't ignore that God has used many broken and discouraged vessels to accomplish his work. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah asked God to take his life, but God still used him. Jeremiah cursed the day that he was born, but God still used him. We know about Job and his struggles, but God still used him. Paul became discouraged in Acts 18, and the Lord had to tell him, don't be afraid, God still used him. Timothy became discouraged and timid, had to be encouraged by Paul in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. God still used him. And God worked through all of these men because they kept looking to him. In Isaiah 
42 and verse 3, it speaks about the tender mercy of the, the Messiah. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Even when we're weak and we're bruised and we're battered, God still finds usefulness for us. Reeds are known for, for not being uh, mighty but weak. You know, a, a Puritan, uh, Richard Sibbs, says reeds uh, need to know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Like I mentioned, a reed was nothing more, it's nothing more than a common piece of tall grass. It grew up in, you know, wet marshy areas, can grow fairly tall, uh, some six to seven feet. You know, there's been reports of some as high as 20 feet tall. But they're flimsy. They're, they're weak. You know, the, out, the inside is, is hollow. They can be snapped easily. They can't bear any weight. And maybe that's how you feel today. You know, I, I feel weak. Joel Beakey says this. He says, uh, maybe you're weak in faith. And you say, oh, that I could believe in Christ more strongly and cling to his promises more securely. He says, maybe you're weak in love. I want to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but there's so much in this wretched heart that opposes that. Maybe you're weak in joy. Oh, oh, that I could be filled with Christ's exalting joy, but so often I'm weighed down and burdened. Maybe you're weak in repentance. My repentance is so shallow. My sins don't grieve me the way they should. Maybe you're weak in prayer. You know, this little childlike faith and confidence. I have so little of that to go before the throne of God. Maybe you're, you feel weak. Reeds are also common. They grew up in the marshes, and there's millions of them, millions of, of reeds. They were cheap. I mean, all you got to do is go down to the marsh and pick one up, right? If you, if you break a reed, it's not like, you know, you, you're really out of, a, out of a lot from your pocket, right? You know, it's like, okay, I broke a reed. I'll just go down and get another one. You don't go to a, a reed repair shop, you know, right? You just go down and I'll just pick another piece of grass. I mean, that's all it is. It's cheap. It's disposable. I can just find a new one. And this is what makes the picture of the Savior just so tender that, that even though I could just go down to the marsh and pick up another stalk, I'm going to choose to use you. Even though you're broken, even though I could easily find somebody else to do this job, I want to use you. And I will use the broken reed. I mean, just the, the tender love of the Savior. The burnt wick is that, that other picture that's given back in Matthew. Uh, the word for, uh, for wick is uh, uh, just a, a small piece of cloth-like material, a piece of linen. You'd place it in a, a bowl of oil and light it up like a candle. And if you had a bad piece of linen because it was dirty or maybe it was cut too short, you know, it would, it would start to, to smolder in the, the oil and start to just smoke instead of have a flame. But this little piece of cloth, instead of just pulling it out, throwing it away, let me get a new piece of cloth. No, I'm going to tenderly care for this little piece of cloth. I'm going to clean it out, stick it back in the oil, and light it on fire again. But I'm going to use you. I mean, that's, that's the tender picture of the Savior. You know, maybe at one time your, your light was burning brightly, but now it's more smoke than light. And God is saying, no, I'm going to use you again. Don't worry about it. I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to stick you back in. You know, I'm going to light you again. Smoke was a sign of the wick's imperfection. And that's all of us as believers, isn't it? You know, we've got areas that need to be chiseled. Smoke was a sign of the wick's weakness. Still aglow, but the flame was gone. By the time the wick started smoking, the fire was almost out. It's more of a hassle to try to clean the old wick than to get a new one. And Jesus could easily pick up a million other pieces of cloth and do the same thing. But he says, no, I'm, I'm going to use you. This, this is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. That, that, that I'm going to 
I'm going to make sure that your faith remains. I'm going to continue to use you. The work that I began, I'm going to complete it. I'm going to finish what I've started. Genuine saving faith won't ultimately fail because it's God's gift and it's held together by the power of God. Our salvation is too precious for God to trust us with it. God will not trust us with our own salvation, our own perseverance. We've been purchased by Christ. We're kept by Christ through faith. And where there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. <laughs> God's still saying, there's, there's still a little life there. Don't worry. You know, I'll tenderly care for that. Smoking wick, I'm going to light it to flame again. And many of us come in as bruised reeds, smoking flax, but he, he binds us together. He nurtures the flame instead of discarding us. Number three, discouragement does not equal insignificance. Look at verse 11, back in uh, Matthew chapter 11 again. Look at verse 11. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. What does God think about his discouraged servant? Far from being insignificant, he says, there's nobody greater. There's nobody greater. That, that should be enough to cause you to pump the brakes a little bit. It's like, hold on a minute. Like, like really? <laughs> like, isn't there like a qualification around that? Like, you know, he's greater than most. It's like, no, he says, there's nobody greater. Nobody is greater than John the Baptist. So what, what are you talking about when you say nobody greater? I'm saying that Adam's not greater, Enoch's not greater, Noah's not greater, Isaac's not greater, Jacob's not greater. We're talking about prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Jeremiah. We're talking about Abraham, who was called a friend of God. Moses, who spoke with God face to face. David, who was a man after God's own heart. And God says, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist among men. Not one of them had the privilege that John the Baptist had. And verse 13 mentions what the privilege was. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. What does that mean? Nobody else in the entire history of the Old Testament was able to announce the inauguration of the king. John had that singular opportunity, that singular privilege. Everybody else was saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist can say, he's here. He's here. Everybody else pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist could say, this is him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is it. He, he's been privileged above all prophets, above all people in the Old Testament, throughout all of redemptive history. Only John got to say, behold, the Lamb of God. He, he's here. He had the privilege of being the best man at the wedding. He, it's in John 3, 29, it says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the front of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. I've got the privilege of being the best man at the wedding. I'm here to announce Jesus Christ. He's here. So the first reason John was greater is because he had the privilege of announcing the king. And then there's this strange saying in verse 12, where it says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, what does that mean? Who are the violent men? Are, they, are we the violent men? Are they the violent men? Like, who's the violent man here? And there are the, the men who, who pressed into the kingdom. I mean, we know that. Is, is this what's being spoken about here? Is, like, coming into the kingdom? 
Who are the violent men? What does it mean? And this really could be taken in one of two ways. It could be said here that the people who receive the kingdom are, are taking it eagerly, you know, eagerly coming into the kingdom, pressing their way into the kingdom. Or it could be taken in another way, that there are violent men who are trying to seize the kingdom from those that it belongs to. What does it mean? I actually believe that in this context, it's speaking about those violent men who are opposing the work of God. Why do I say that? Number one, the context of chapter 11 and 12 is talking about the rejection of the kingdom by the people in the cities where Jesus did his greatest miracles. They didn't believe. Look at what Jesus says down in verse uh, 16. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is in the context of people who are rejecting the kingdom of God. You know, it doesn't matter what you bring. They're still going to reject it. Secondly, we don't find the language of entering the kingdom here, but rather taking the kingdom, seizing it, snatching it. That's typically not a good picture, you know, to seize, to snatch. And third, the plot that the Pharisees had to destroy Jesus in verse 14 of chapter 12 fit the description of those who are trying to seize the kingdom. And actually in uh, chapter 21 of Matthew, Jesus pictures the, uh, those who uh, uh, should have been pointing towards the kingdom as those who are trying to take the kingdom away. In uh, Matthew 21, I'll just read this, verse 38 and 39, it says, But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Let's take the kingdom for ourselves. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And what I believe this is teaching us is that John the Baptist is one in a long line of prophets who was persecuted. One in a long line of prophets who was persecuted. But he had nothing to be ashamed about. Violent men are trying to take the kingdom by force, but those who stand up for God have nothing to be ashamed about. Because I'm part of the long line of prophets who other people have persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And nobody in all of salvation history had the kind of impact that John the Baptist had And he received the condemnation of those around him. But his discouragement during this moment did not equal some kind of insignificance. No, John was the greatest of all prophets. And he's in the line of all the other faithful prophets who are suffering in the same way as he did and also as Jesus would later on. And number four, discouragement does not equal uselessness. Look at verse 14. It says, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Often when Jesus made that statement, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, uh, it was because what was said required spiritual insight. You know, if you're really going to get this, you, you need to have spiritual insight to get this. When Jesus said that John himself is Elijah, what was Jesus talking about? What was he saying that this is an Elijah reincarnated? You know, this is Elijah 2.0, back in the flesh? You know, was, was this actually Elijah here? Nowhere in the scripture, you know, would it give us the, uh, any kind of support for that idea. This is not, you know, Elijah in another body. You know, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it's appointed for men once to die, 
and after death comes the judgment. There's no such thing as reincarnation. And if there was such a thing as reincarnation, you'd always come back in the same way. (laughs) Because you'd still come back as a sinner. You're never going to come back without your sins. You know, it would be hopeless, useless. So, so no, Jesus isn't saying that, that Elijah has come back from the dead and he's been reincarnated in the body of John the Baptist. In addition to that, John himself said directly that I'm not Elijah. They asked him the question, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. But what the scriptures did say about John the Baptist was that he would live in the power and the spirit of Elijah, that he would be an Elijah-type figure. And that shouldn't be hard to understand because uh, we've already had an example of a person who received the spirit and power of Elijah. And who was that? It was Elisha who came right after Elijah, you know, who had the, the power and the spirit of Elijah. So, so here you have John the Baptist coming in that, that same kind of, of spirit, that same kind of ministry that Elijah had. And that's who John the Baptist was. It's a reference to, uh, to John the, the Baptist being that, that kind of uh, figure that the scripture talked about. Look over in uh, Luke chapter 1 real quick. Luke chapter 1. This is uh, what was said about John the Baptist before his birth in verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is a reference to what Malachi predicted back in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and, and 6. And in the providence of God, John the Baptist accomplished exactly what the Spirit of God said that he would. His ministry bore fruit. He turned many to the Lord. He turned men like John, the apostle, the apostle John, Andrew, the brother of Peter, to Christ. Men like Apollos were influenced by John the Baptist's ministry. Countless others were influenced by his ministry. And John's battle with doubt here did not contradict the impact that he would have on all these men. God's work through him was genuine. Uh, the fruit that he had was real. Even if he doubted at times, even if he was discouraged, God, John was still God's messenger. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once told the story about uh, coming to, uh, uh, to listen to a preacher. You know, and uh, as he was listening to this preacher, he started recognizing the sermon because it was his own sermon <laughs> being preached by somebody else. And uh, as he's listening to his sermon being preached to, to himself, he's being encouraged by the words of that sermon. And after the, the sermon was over, he went and introduced himself to the preacher and says, hey, I'm Charles Spurgeon. And the preacher's obviously embarrassed <laughs> because he had been preaching Spurgeon's sermon in front of Spurgeon. But Spurgeon said, it was good to be reminded about what I believe. And I was encouraged by my own words because that's what I preach. That's what I I believe. I believe in the word of God. John was greatly used by God and his ministry was effective, even though he had to be reminded about what he believed. (laughs) Now, you, you already said that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now he has to be reminded of his own sermon. This is what you preached. This is what you said. This is what you believe about Jesus. Had to be reminded of his own words. It didn't mean that John was any less of a messenger because he went through a period of of doubt, of discouragement. What it did mean is that uh, 
John knew where to go. John knew where to go. He was a man who was truly great. Jesus defended him publicly. His true greatness was seen before men, had the greatest privilege out of all the Old Testament prophets. He was a person of strength, of worth, of significance, usefulness, even mixed with the doubt. He had the greatest privilege imaginable. Jesus elevates this idea here before the people, but listen to what else he does. He also elevates those who are least in the kingdom. He says that there's not one greater than John the Baptist in verse 11. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. (laughs) You know who that's talking about? It's talking about us. The, The ones who are least in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. What are you talking about, Jesus? How, how in the world could, could I have a, a privilege that's greater than John the Baptist of, you know, the one who introduced Jesus Christ to the world? Because we're the ones who've benefited from the work of Jesus Christ to the world, right? We've benefited from his life, from his death, from his resurrection. We're those who've, been, who've entered into that kingdom that John predicted was to come. We're those who are the least, but we're greater than the greatest of all? Are you kidding me? <laughs> If you've believed in Jesus Christ today, you've entered into that kingdom by faith. And you'll be present in that kingdom to come when it's brought to earth in all of its reality. And we live in a world where people are scratching and clawing to to be first, to have prominence. And Jesus lets us know that the the path to greatness is to, to find yourself low, right? To humble yourself before the Lord. That's the path to greatness. To submit to, to the Lord, to submit to his rule, to submit to, to his way. The way up is down. And those who are part of his kingdom today have a greater privilege than John the Baptist had. And uh, the question for you is, do you, do you recognize that privilege that you have? We have a fuller picture of the gospel than John had. Are you proclaiming that message that we now have a fuller understanding of? Our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in the one who died for us, our assurance rests in him. It's not because of, of our faithfulness, it's because of his faithfulness, right? And of course, there's doubt, discouragement, there's times of affliction, but that doesn't change our position in Christ, right? There's obvious distinctions, like I said, between believers and unbelievers, but there's even distinctions between believers and believers uh, because some of us are in different conditions of our souls even now. And if you're looking up to Christ, you've come to the right place. You need to look to Christ. One hymn says says this, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves convincing us of sin, Revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for the opportunity that we have to listen to your word. Now, Father, I thank you for the encouragement that your word brings to us. Oh, Lord, your word is such a comfort. Father, we thank you that uh, we have a, a word that's, uh, that's honest, that's transparent, uh, that even the, the greatest of all the prophets, uh, that we, we see his weaknesses, uh, that we see when he became discouraged, when he doubted, 
when he wondered if the, the message that he preached in times past was even the truth. But Father, in his doubt, he came to Jesus. And that's where we need to come, Lord. When we, when we feel weak, Lord, when we're discouraged, we need to come to Christ. So Father, I pray that we would continue uh, to look to him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Father, that you would be glorified in our lives, Lord. And uh, Father, we're just so grateful that uh, you've given us uh, this example uh, so that we may learn uh, from your word. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.